Hello, and welcome to Catapult Network's Supercharging Innovation Podcast. My name is Jeremy Silver, Chair for this year of the Catapult Network. In this series, I've been talking with some of the UK's top industry and academic leaders, business people and parliamentarians to get their views on the future of innovation. On today's episode, I'm delighted to welcome Chion Wara MP. Chi is the Labour MP for Newcastle-upon-Tyne Central and is also Shadow Minister for Digital Science and Technology. Chi has previously held a number of positions in the Shadow Cabinet covering culture, innovation, science and digital infrastructure. Chi continues to work closely with the science and business community on issues such as industrial strategy, digital inclusion and online safety. Prior to entering Parliament in May 2010, Chi had a successful career working in the global telecom sector. She graduated from Imperial College in electronic and electrical engineering and worked as an electrical engineer in hardware and software development, product management, market development and strategy for a variety of companies in a number of different countries, including the UK, France, the US, Nigeria and Denmark. So Chi, it's an absolute pleasure to have you with us today. It's a real pleasure to be with you. I'm a huge admirer of the work, well, your work, but also but the work of the catapults generally. And it's really great to talk about innovation and science with people who are doing it. <laughs> well, let's get into that because there's lots to talk about and we're absolutely fascinated to hear your thoughts. But I actually wanted to start in a way with the way that your background and now your, your political career kind of work together. You worked before your political career as a chartered engineer, you must have worked in a lot of different companies. And, and so unlike a lot of sort of career politicians, if I can use that label, you, you really understand the impact of technology on people's lives from the inside. How does that inform your work in politics, do you think? You know, that's a really great question, Jeremy. And I, and I will say that when I was being elected as the MP for Newcastle Central was the proudest moment of my life. But there was a sense that I was leaving engineering, technology, science, innovation behind. And there was a sort of sense of grief about that. But then actually, I mean, my entry into Parliament in 2010 sort of coincided, if you like, with tech's expansion to to eat <laughs> to eat the world, you know, like technology particularly is a so much bigger part of everybody's lives now. Actually, it's probably better to say it's a more known invisible part if you like i mean I, I say that our lives for centuries you know progress of the human race has depended on innovation and uh, science as, as well as politics and politicians the last 10 years that's become much more visible and, and covid has sort of brought you know innovation the importance of technology science and innovation front and center in everybody's lives so a lot of the decisions, the policies that I'm working on are really informed by my background in technology and my background in business and my experience of technology and innovation and the impact around the world. And I just want to give one example of that because it's the one that sort of really sticks with me. In 2000, I was working in the US and the dot-com crash happened and, and the, the company I was working for went bust. And then I went to work in Nigeria to build out the GSM network, the first GSM network that in Nigeria. 
for the company called MTN. And I really saw, you know, the impact both of technology, because being able to, to phone a doctor, you know, not having to, to you know, walk or, or drive to try and get help or support. I saw the impact that had and also the impact of government regulation, because that was what freed up the spectrum to enable that network to be rolled out. I often think about that, that sort of transformation impact that technology can have when I'm trying to, to push this government to invest or to have a strategy or industrial strategy or long-term funding plan for science, because it's a sort of difference I want for my constituents and for people in the country and across the world. That's an incredible journey to have made between the sort of the, the high-tech leading edge of the West Coast and the dot-com boom through to the challenging work to create a GSM network in a country like Nigeria. That is that is an extraordinary set of contrasts. I suppose making a link from that, we've just been through uh, 18 months of the most extraordinary contrast <laughs> to our normal lives. And we've now sort of all been reprogrammed almost to actually work in a different way. In that context, do you think that innovation can be a genuine means of recovering from COVID and, and driving the economy out the other side? I think more than that, Jeremy, I actually think it is the only means of recovering from COVID, particularly because at the same time, and I, you know, I was on a COP26 uh, demonstration at the weekend, we have climate change, which is an existential challenge, which sort of arose from the first industrial revolution and we have COVID and the UK's economy you know who's hit harder than any other economy in the G7 I think so the only way to build back from that in a way which gives people sustainable jobs and a sense and this is really really important for me a sense of agency in the jobs that they have a sense of empowerment is through technology and innovation. We can't be giving people sort of short-term, low-skill, low-agency, low-pay jobs. We've got to transform our economy. We've got to meet the requirements of a net-zero economy. And so as part of that, we have got to create and deliver high-skill, innovation-rich jobs, whether that be in the tech sector, whether that be in renewables, whether that be in the care sector. I mean, you know, the care we talk about social care has also been seen as a critical part of the economy that it, that it is during the COVID crisis. And I also just, yeah, I could talk about this forever and I'm going to try not to, but I also think that the pace of innovation, which delivered a vaccine from a standing start in a year, that has helped people understand the power of technology and science better and so I'm hoping you know that that there's more of a sort of democratic commitment to what that needs to look like and then it's not just really critical for the catapult it's not only science but actually getting that vaccine into people's arms big part of it was science but it was also engineering manufacturing distribution logistics training it was all that and that's what we need <laughs> It is an extraordinary example of the country unifying around a, a massive, as you say, massive logistics exercise as much as anything else. And I think, you know, everyone involved in that should be hugely congratulated because mm. it, it is clearly exemplary. When you think about the sort of innovation landscape in the UK mm. and the different organisations, mm. and, and obviously the government's just published its innovation strategy, which is a substantial document. But I just wonder, what, what do you think? the challenges for the UK are. I mean, there's this ambition to become a global leader, a superpower in science, technology and innovation. What do you think we need to do? What are the big challenges we've got to overcome? 
That's a huge question, Jeremy. Yes. I suppose I, I do want to start by saying that certainly the government isn't lacking in publishing strategies, papers and documents. We've had an R&D roadmap, then we had an innovation strategy, we've had sector deals, we've had uh, grand challenges, you know. What we don't have and what, one of the things I think you know we really need is a long-term funding plan for science, the UKRI as well, because when you're going from year to year, with with COVID, with the vaccine, you know, we had a huge breakthrough in a year, but that is not what science needs. So what we need is a long-term funding plan for science, and that's one of the things that Labour commits to, as well as the ambition. So we need, you know, right now, a spend on innov on research and development is, I think, 1.7% of GDP. Uh, the Conservatives have promised to raise that to 2.4%, though they haven't set out a plan for it. All these plans don't have any money with them, you know, it's like ambition but it's not actually how they're going to fund it. But what Labour says is that 3%, because 3% is world leading. We are a world leading science nation and we need to match that with world leading funding. 2.4% is just the average. So that's like, if you like, the overarching vision, but then at the more micro scale. So we, and we've got great challenges, you know, like net zero, like feeding a world population, like the technological transformation, which is happening, artificial intelligence, algorithms, we've got to have a society where they are, are for the general, the public good. What we need is to make sure, to me, it's skills, skills drive almost everything. Um, it's universality in as much as, you know, we need science spend in the northeast in the northwest we need great start and this is one of the things that the, you know the catapults help support we need startups starting up across our country i want kids in my primary schools in newcastle to think that they could be the gigafactory engineers of the future or the vaccine discoverers of the future and to do that they need to see it they need to be visiting universities visiting companies you know having them come into their having teachers who are empowered to show what that really means as well as that and the whole process of commercialization of great ideas so you know we also need every business to be more of a digital and tech business i'm just going to finish on this example i was like examples from newcastle it locked down in march 2020 Granger Market, which is an iconic uh, 19th century covered market in Newcastle, was not online at all. <laughs> you know, I think it had a Twitter tag, which it hadn't used for like three years or something. Within three weeks, it moved online and you could order your groceries, your fish, your meat online. But that didn't mean that those businesses really have digitized. You know, there's still cyber skills, there's digital marketing. And right now, that is being offered by Facebook and Google. Some is offered by Barclays. What we need is Make UK also say this. What we need is an upskilling of businesses generally and access to business support because all businesses are going to be digital businesses. And, you know, that needs to be pushed through our economy. So I'll try and stop there, but I could go on. It's really interesting. And I think the challenges that you talk about there, I think, are so real. And obviously, you know, we have seen really good initiatives from people from the likes of Facebook and Google, who, of course, are keen to attract more users to their own platforms. So, so the generosity always has a self-serving right. element to it. The training is generally uses their products and services, and indeed there's a lack of competition in the market, but um, that's exacerbated by that. So yeah, I think government has a responsibility there.
I suppose the interesting question is, from the perspective of, of agencies like the Catapults, we, we tend to be looking at the kind of more leading edge, more advanced areas of the technology sectors that we're engaged with. And I suppose in some respects, I wonder whether you think there's a gap you know, you put the focus on that need at the at the broad level of, of SMEs and of legacy businesses to digitize, which is clearly there. And the ambition of big programs like Made Smarter is obviously, you know, yeah. pointing at that and trying to yeah. make that difference. Do you think, though, that we sort of don't necessarily have a clear enough view of how that works and then how the, this, this higher level adoption of, of more leading edge technology works and then how the research in universities work? How do they all are they connected up clearly enough? Do you think it's a clear enough strategy there? No, the short answer is no. And the gaps are a number of levels. I mean, I just do want to pay tribute to the work that the catapults do. And as I said, the locations, I think it's over, over 40 locations for catapults and the networks around which they're based, Northeast Wales, Sheffield, you know, that is truly a national asset. So I think the catapult network is doing great work. And it, there was a reason to expand that work. But I also think we need to join it up more with regional economies, particularly. And the reason I say regional economies is because there's a lack of regional economic growth being equalized. And just let me say, I have to say this, COVID really exposed the regional and social inequalities in our country, whether it be if you look at the rates of infection in cities across the country, or whether it be the black and minority ethnic rates of uh, infection and deaths as well. So it really exposed inequalities, regional economy, economic growth is the way we is one of the ways to address those inequalities. And yet we know that, for example, the government investment on science is £22 per person in the north, which is two-fifths of what it is in the in the south and the Midlands. So one of the things there is about a scale. Obviously, the Golden Triangle, if you like, has scale. Cambridge has scale, not as much as the Silicon Valley, but it has scale. And so joining up regional networks and so joining up uh, the catapults, having the exchange with the universities. One of my concerns, and I don't know what you think about this, is that because of uh, changes or limitations in funding, at times catapults and universities are competing for funding rather than, you know, sort of working together to join up uh, regional economies and drive more regional growth. We also have a lack of measurement of in terms of what is succeeding because with the loss of the regional development agencies, nobody's actually measuring. You know, I asked this to the minister once, how do we know if a knowledge exchange framework is, is working? What do we see? How do we see and measure really regional growth at a micro level? And, and there's very little measurement statistics or figures, data, if you like, so that we can measure what success is. So we need that to be more joined up and we need to drive uh, the funding in a way that delivers not only more science spend and more innovation spend, but more joined up regional economic growth as part of that. The question of, of evaluation of impact in this space is one that's plagued so many people and it obviously raises all sorts of challenges, not least because the, so much of the impact is obviously longer term and people are impatient and want to see uh, immediate re <laughs> reactions and, and impacts. <laughs> to your comment about the universities and catapults sometimes competing, sometimes we do. Actually, our experience is that we have much more collaboration than is perhaps understood or, or recognised, and that, that may be our, us being at fault in not 
publicizing that collaboration. Yeah. Really. But the thing that's, yeah. that's difficult yeah. is, in fact, actually the rules of engagement and the mechanisms that allow funding to flow, which haven't been reviewed for 10 years since the catapults were formed. And so there are often times when the universities and catapults would like to collaborate on equal terms with one another in, in a, a really collaborative way. And actually the rules prevent that. So there are some elements there which I think are, are urgently in need of review. And I'm, I, it's interesting, of course, we've got Paul Nurse looking at this whole landscape at the moment. I wonder whether, yeah. you, whether you've got any <laughs> thoughts about what your message to Paul Nurse would be at this point. Well, I think just to say on the point about the, the way in which catapults are funded and, and a lack of review, you know, I think that's a, that's a really important point and it's something that we should be holding the, the new or the renewed science minister to account on. I mean, I have a huge amount of respect for, for Paul Nurse and, you know, in, in some ways he can always bring great insights to our science ecosystem and I think nurse 2.0 as, as, as it's called to reflect the fact that we did have a review um, and a change. I am concerned about the nurse review specifically but I am concerned that there was a lot of sort of moving of the infrastructure furniture I mean the creation of ARIA which we supported you know and the changes in you know UKRI and the research you know I do think that the science community and I do hope Paul will say that needs to be more direct, if you like, in saying that what we also need is the long-term strategy, vision and, and funding. And then we can set up a, a sort of science um, landscape, if you like, or drive a, a science landscape, which meets the key public goods that public money uh, should be directed at. That's what my message to Paul would be, was, would, would sort of be, what, what can you bring back, which means we don't have a nurse 3.0 in two years time <laughs> <laughs> yes i mean obviously we are in a very very fast moving environment in which a lot of the moving parts change at remarkable rate i mean you know what's happened to us in the last two years no one could have imagined that we would be in this position and so with all the best in the world you probably couldn't have planned for it even though there was a line that said pandemic on someone's emergency plan <laughs> um, so it is an interesting thought that the the rate of change is always going to outstrip the, the kind of infrastructure that that enables it there is a sense at the moment though that we haven't perhaps quite got the balance right and i wonder what your thought is about this between the the kind of need for an undeniable importance of blue sky research and the kind of academic research which goes deep and wide into the unknown and more directive research and development and innovation that is really about pulling the, the best of that out and the most applicable mm. of that out into the marketplace and have we got the balance right do you think and how do we know that so that's an excellent question. And I am I'm a believer in science for science's sake. I think it meets a sort of intense human need to drive out the boundaries of knowledge. Uh, I think that is part of who we are as the human race, if you like, and that uh, science is and should be part of our cultural identity as Britons. And I can say that, and I can say at the same time, public money need to be directed for public good. Now, I think science in itself is a public good, but I also feel that we need to be more sort of explicit about 
and again, this is my criticism of this government, is that it seems to think that government should get out of the way of just about everything. And I think government needs to be more explicit in where science researchers should be going. And when we have an expanding science budget, that explicitness can be there in black and white. And so to give a very specific example, we would have had ARIA, the Advanced Research and Innovation uh, Agency, to, which is to support high-risk high reward research, we would have had that be targeted at, say, at net zero to have an explicit overarching aim. That's inclusive. It's not taking away from existing science spend. We hope, or certainly in our view, it shouldn't be. Um, That's a new increase in science spend. It'd also be clearer about the public good of increased regional uh, research and regional investment. We try and say this is pure research spending and this is spending aimed at our great challenges, but we need to also need to look and assess the impact of both because, you know, it was was pure research into radio, you know, which ended up with our fantastic uh, 5G is pure research now which will ultimately lead through to uh, benefits for my constituents, and I do think that link. You know, I think my constituents need to understand and see that link better. I think I I am very concerned at the way in which tech is giving a bad name to science. The headlines are there's tech, but then the other headlines, you know, Franken foods and all uh, stuff. I think we need to be able to say more clearly that this we're spending on science, we're investing on science because it gives a return to you, you know, in your lives. And it's this and this and this and this and make that clearer. It's really interesting that the sort of journey of, of, uh, of, of social acceptability of technology between 2000 and 2021 is not a particularly edifying story, as we, as, the, as we, as we all know. And the, the status of big tech is clearly one that, it, it, in some respects, I think gives an opportunity to UK companies. There's a lot of work going on in the UK yeah. to try and develop a more responsible view and to make such a good the point. technology for good and to take yes. uh, create ethics frameworks within which powerful technologies like AI can operate. Yes, exactly. Do you think that there's a framework that we should expect government to produce? How do you see that working? There's such a fine balance, isn't there, between over-regulating something before it's fully flowered and at the same time recognising the kind of potential harm and and dangers there are in new technologies and putting some fencing around that. What's your sense of that? I mean, that's absolutely right. And again, it's something I could talk about for a long time. Um, after working in Nigeria, I went to work for Ofcom, the Office of Communications. And that was 2004, just if you like, as, as, as face, I think Facebook had had a public affairs person in the UK for three months or something like that, you know, just as that kind of started. And in Ofcom, we were very concerned under a Labour government, it may say, about over-regulating nascent technologies and nascent services and I think that was right so that was 2004 5 6 15 years later we still have no regulation and that is wrong you know so there was a balance in that intervening time unfortunately what has happened is that companies like Google and Facebook have uh, captured the market you know so that there isn't competition so that small UK companies you know who may have better ways of searching for services or whatever are locked out because there is one search engine effectively or 
there is a balance to be struck, but we haven't struck, or this government hadn't struck it. Or it's going, you know, since 2010 was we should have been looking at, at regulation. And I, you know, and I always say this is not rocket science. Literally, it is not rocket science. The, the technologies which people, which are dry, shaping people's lives now, have been around for some time. You know, we need to look forward-looking regulation. Anything I say is, the, you know, the opposite of. Unfortunately, it's true. The opposite of regulation is not no regulation. It's bad regulation because we will now are quite likely we've got the online safety bill coming through Parliament have bad regulation. So, yes, I think that technologies like artificial intelligence and uh, algorithms, we need to be looking at how to regulate them. We need to start. So technology is not something that happens to us. Technology is something that we as a society, you know, and particularly as a democratic society can and should shape. And when it comes to algorithmic bias, and there's a recent finding that, for example, if you advertise for an engineer on Facebook, I forget the exact figure, but was it 90 percent of the people who see that, that advert will be men? Because Facebook, (laughs) the algorithm, you know, will maximize his views and that's what the algorithm uh, is. So, you know, that kind of regulation to ensure the bias is not perpetuated and industrialized through new technologies is for me, it is a no brainer. How you do it, look, you have to look forward, you have to understand what the technology impact is. You have to have discussions, both social and tech discussions, if you like, that's all required, but we can't just allow our futures to be captured by a biased framework. And that means it needs to be an alternative framework, which which is, is for a democratic government to support. It's really interesting though, isn't it? If you think about the UK in this context, obviously there are challenges for us, given that these companies are largely multinational companies, yeah. but mm-hmm. thinking more about the UK and how we would approach this and assuming we would find ways of making this work for, for us as a country, but also thinking about your international experience and, the, and, and our sort of mm-hmm. new context that we find ourselves in afloat independently in the world and separate from the EU. I mean, if you think about the American approach to this, it's very free market and very, uh, until recently, until they, recently they started to wake up a bit. But nonetheless, that the tendency is, is that direction compared with the EU, which is very pro-consumer and and trying to to protect the consumer as a sort of primary goal. Is there a sort of position for the UK somewhere between the two, do you think? Which side do you err on? I think it's really interesting, as I'm not sure I kind of agree with your characteristic. You know, when I was at Ofcom, uh, the entire European sort of competitive market framework for telecoms had been, was the, the UK's. You know, it had been it, it had been set by the UK following the privatization of British Telecom, actually. You know, it's kind of ironic that we've walked away from what we sort of hugely influenced and set up. Whereas the US often talks, and, and I'm not going to talk about Trump because what he talked said didn't make sense on so many levels. But you know, before Trump talked a very free market talk, they have very strong antitrust legislation. And I think part of the challenge was how you use that in these new markets and the Biden administration, you know, I think, and we'll we'll see, but the Biden administration and, you know, senators like Elizabeth Warren are much more uh, sort of aggressively ready to take that on. But to answer your actual question, I do think there is a kind of an intermediate place for the UK to be. The US's sort of legislation, for example, on workers' rights is far 
behind ours. The European Union's business regulation can be more bureaucratic at times. So there is a there is an intermediate role for the, for the UK to play. And I also think we should recognise that we can still influence what happens in other countries and other countries at times do look do look to us. So if we can get the regulation right, then actually we can support our businesses to be ahead of what I think is a global move, what I hope is a global move, to a more a fairer system. Uh, we also have to watch out, obviously, for countries, you know, like uh, China and Russia setting standards and standards bodies which support more authoritarian approaches to regulation. We want to see regulation, but we don't want it to be authoritarian. They want to see regulation often and they want it to put the control in the hands of the state. We, I, wanted to put control in the hands of citizens and consumers. So yeah, it's a multi, it's a multi-piece and multi-dimensional chess game. But I think we are in a good, strong position if we just have a strategy and a vision that you know that we know where we're going instead of moving around the deck chairs without deciding where we're uh, trying to head to. It's great to hear you reminding us of the sort of the level of influence that we did have over European policy and the fact that, of course, that thinking and those processes and that discipline and experience hasn't gone away. We still have that and we can still exercise that influence if we get it right. And I think that's that's an incredibly positive and optimistic <laughs> thought that we can all, you know, push forward with. I want to just switch tack for, for a couple of minutes because we're, we're nearly at the end. And, and I don't want to leave our conversation without asking you about one of the really crucial themes of our time and obviously in the period of lockdown we also saw the extraordinary rise of the Black Lives Matter movement for all the real reasons that we are familiar with and we know as well as a continuing recognition of the importance of gender equality and of, of a broader agenda on, on inclusion. I mean you, you've worked in an extraordinary time in an extraordinarily male-dominated <laughs> industry. I, I'm sure you must have, have had some extraordinary experiences in that. I suppose if you're addressing young women at this point and people from a diversity of backgrounds and orientations, I wanted to say something encouraging them about getting involved in technology and innovation. What's your message to them today? <laughs> well, I say, I suppose there's a number of things I'd say. I suppose one of the things is that, you know, I was being the MP for Newcastle is the best job in the world, in Newcastle Central, but being an engineer was the best job in the world before that. So it's the second best job in the world. You shouldn't let other people and other people's prejudices and indeed the existing structures of the education in the market be a barrier to the Im immense empowerment and also capacity for good that going into tech and engineering involves. I mean, I always say that tech is the most, or tech should be the most caring career because what is more caring than putting people in touch with each other or ensuring that there's clean water or that we have a vaccine and that it's also an empowering career i tell you that the job security is a lot better than being a member of parliament you know for good reasons <laughs> and it's also better paid and also just to say that i think we have history on our side, one of the biggest changes when I, you know, for the many years that I spent as the only woman in the room and the only person of colour and, you know, often the only working class person in the room as well, you know, where it wasn't recognised as an issue and it was considered a sort of fluffy kind of tick box thing. You know, I think now there is a real recognition that companies which are not diverse I mean, I got walk into a room and it's only the company is represented only by men. And I just think I think they must be from a different century for start. So there's a recognition that it's good. It's important reputationally, but also and this is probably more important. It's important in a sort of 
business and innovation because you cannot escape groupthink if your group comes from the same narrow demographic and uh, the kind of resilience and creativity one needs to be delivering the best services and the things which will change people's lives and people will pay you know money for you know that comes from a diverse workforce and diverse teams so not everybody gets it yet and i'm argue strongly for more metrics every company should have a plan as to how it is going to achieve gender balance and achieve uh, diversity and inclusion but i do think there's a more serious desire to do that in the industry i mean it's really inspiring to hear you say that but i think it really feels true out there but of course it's it's tough and it feels uncomfortable at times and it probably should feel uncomfortable for some of us it's just wonderful to hear you say those things and i and particularly that thing that i i can't get away from is the importance of diverse different kinds of experience and mindsets and different brains bring a bring a kind of richness we're right out of time but i've got one final fun question that i ask everyone who comes on this and i'm gonna you're no exception so here's the fun question we've all enjoyed the ipod the oyster card electric cars what's your favorite innovation (laughs) oh dear what is my uh favorite innovation um there's so many to choose from but my favorite innovation is the smartphone because to have that much processing power in your pocket and 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 i also want to say this you know i mean i've been critical of big tech but i will tell you that google maps has saved you know more relationships and more arguments than possibly any other technology (laughs) (laughs) so actually let me say let me say that google maps and directions is especially as a cyclist as well you know i think their initial version wasn't very good for cycling and walking and then they've done some development here in the uk and it's much better so yeah google maps and it has an amazing augmented reality layer to it as well now which is which is also pretty incredible thank you thank you so much and thank you all of you for joining us today thank you very much to my special guest Chio Mura it's been a pleasure to have you thank you very much it's been really great fun and uh, yeah thanks very much speak to you again sometime that's all for today's supercharging innovation podcast thanks for listening Join us again for the next podcast episode and make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes or Spotify. Other podcast distribution platforms are, of course, also available. Goodbye.